This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Folks, welcome into B-Town, the Bartholomew Town Podcast, Rhode Island's podcast of record. Yes, it's Bill Bartholomew here with you. Today, we welcome political operative Michael Beauregard of Systems Change Strategies for kind of a reflection on the 2020 elections and how that kind of shapes the lens that we should look at the 2022 elections, particularly when it comes to progressive candidates and concepts, which is where Michael puts his energy in the political sector. So... uh, Look, it's way too early to really start to get into the 2022 election. I promise you that I am already planning things for next year. A lot of big things that will, uh, in terms of coverage, in terms of events, stand by. We're going to go all in. And for the most part, I've been trying to stay away from it. You may have noticed even here the roster of guests that I've been bringing on, the types of shows that I've been doing. We've been kind of drifting in and out of direct politics for the last few weeks and we'll probably continue to do so, um, obviously, except for breaking news, major stories, all that kind of stuff. But for a good portion of the summer, we're going to try to look at different areas of Rhode Island in anticipation that when we get to the fall, we're going to be a year out from a humongous election here in the Ocean State. And that will be a major portion of what we do here on the program, probably for a year and change, which is kind of what we do normally, quote unquote, anyway. But I think this was a good time to have Michael Beauregard on to kind of reflect on 2020, what that has, or I should say how that's played out now in the General Assembly and in the various municipalities where changes took place, whether it's specifically progressive candidates getting into office, progressive candidates putting pressure on more established elected officials um, in terms of policymaking, or maybe a progressive candidate challenged an established candidate, didn't win, but sort of created pressure that now has forced that established candidate to rethink some of their positions or at least some of their approaches. We're in a good moment now where we can start to evaluate that stuff as we head into the summer. Um, I guess technically we're in it. I mean, not calendar wise, but boy, is it beautiful out here today as I look out the window from our Providence studios and just in general. So, Taking a moment to look from the progressive side, as always, we will have all voices here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast evaluating, assessing politics, but today, Michael Beauregard of Systems Change Strategies. And by the way, folks, if you want to reach out to me, you may do so anytime. It's bill at ripodcast.com, or go ahead and tweet at me at Bill Bartholomew. That same handle will direct you to me on Instagram, and you can join the Bartholomew Town Podcast Facebook group for daily digital content and discussions. Okay, let's get to it. Michael Beauregard here on Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Right now in Rhode Island, certainly when we look at the 2020 elections, even looking at the 2018 elections, we're seeing progressive candidates, progressive ideas, um, certainly in the Senate and the House, starting to become more of a mainstream type of conversation. Why do you think that is that right now in this moment, Rhode Island is starting to open up to more progressive legislation and governance? Yeah, that's a great question, Bill. I I think there's a couple of factors. There's some obvious ones and then some not so obvious ones. So I think first off, uh, obviously Trump, you know, getting elected, was a huge catalyst for a lot of people waking up. And, you know, we've seen that since 2016, just a lot more people paying attention, getting involved in, in local advocacy. Um, and, and I think, you know, also a proliferation of groups um, to make that, you know, opportunity more available to folks, both at the local, state, and national level. Um, but something that's, I think, a little bit less obvious is that 
honestly, progressive organizing groups have a kind of different approach to how they uh, approach campaigning and advocacy. And I think progressives in general are really good at coalition building and organizing in ways that, uh, you know, maybe other segments of either the Democratic Party or particularly other uh, political parties just aren't as good at. So whether that's, you know, knocking doors, whether that's having sophisticated uh, data and field operations, there's definitely a lot of um, just skills and and really quality people in the movement who I think are getting involved and in really building those skills over time. So, you know, 2016, we saw a number of uh, really high profile progressive primary wins. And that that momentum has only continued through 2018, 2020, and hopefully beyond. So it's a really exciting time for, you know, this people who share progressive values in the state. What's interesting as well is when we look at 2018 here in Rhode Island, I, I always zoom back to maybe it's because I was hyper focused on it from from a coverage standpoint, but the lieutenant governor's race and the separation between Aaron Regenberg and now Governor McKee, just a very marginal victory for Dan McKee, somebody who, look, he's not a household name, but he certainly was more of a political player, so to speak, um, and had certainly massive traction in the Blackstone River Valley, also in Providence. And the run that Regenberg gave him during that campaign, that was when I said, okay, people who are not necessarily even identifying as progressive are voting for somebody that is progressive. They may not even realize that on, you know, on a certain level, but they, they're accepting and, and wanting to move forward with those ideas in a state office. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right that I mean, good organizing and good messaging like work for everybody right, left, center, it doesn't matter. And I think, you know, uh, Aaron's campaign really showed showed that in his performance or near, you know, near success in his performance. Um, But I also think that there's, um, you know, a lot that he was talking about that had really nonpartisan appeal in terms of, you know, the transparency and good government that he was really emphasizing in his message. And I think as you see, you know, going forward, we're going to see more, you know, leaders in the state, including our governor, you know, take on issues of common interest, not just to progressives, but people who care about better government, um, recognizing that it's not only politically, you know, popular, but it's also things that people want. And, and I think, you know, this is best, I think, exemplified in what's happening at the national level right now, because I, I think if you go back a couple of years and you said, what would President Biden look like? Um, you know, I don't think anybody would have guessed that he'd be pushing some of the policies that are frankly, you know, like at the core of what it means to be a progressive Democrat in the country, whether it's direct subsidies, expanded childcare access, like these are things that like the left has been talking about for a very long time. And now you see them being adopted by the mainstream because they're not only good policies, they're also really popular policies. So I I just am optimistic that, you know, we're seeing some great stuff come out of the general assembly and hopefully that's going to continue going forward. Yeah. You know, I remember back when I was in school at, at the University of Rhode Island, you know, I remember being surprised and this was in uh, admittedly in the aughts. So it's not like it was 2019 or something, but, um, you know, a professor said, hey, look, you know, let's let's we kind of an, analyzed the left right spectrum looking at Europe, looking at South America, looking at other places. And you start to get the ideas, particularly in Rhode Island, that being a Democrat isn't really that far left in the grand scheme of things. And so the progressive movement, it's almost as if it's the real left is kind of taking shape in the United States and here in Rhode Island as well. And it presents a more authentic spectrum. So the Democratic Party, it's frankly, it's more of a moderate 
centrist type of organization. And we're not necessarily at a point where we're going to have the, we're going to break down the two party system, but we're starting to get to a point where it's better represented where people stand. Um, the D next to your name doesn't necessarily mean that you are on board with AOC or something like that. No, I think that's right. Uh, I, I mean, I think there's, you know, a very common use saying that's like, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And I think, uh, you know, that has long been held for a lot of organ- uh, populations that don't get engaged in our politics. But I think a lot of people are creating and bringing their folding chairs and a lot of great organizations and coalitions and tables are being built. I think the big test and challenge and question for uh, the progressive movement in the state and across the country is going to be like, how can people, coalitions with common interest and common ground, uh, learn to work together? Um, we're, we're seeing it here on any number of issues where um, there's one or more or two or more competing you know, coalitions or groups of people who share, I would argue, 95 to 99% of the same values and ideas. Right. Um, but there's difference, differences in tactics. And I think that that's where a lot of the disagreements and I think uh, struggles are going to be for the next couple of years in terms of progressives governing is can folks truly, you know, uh, embody what democracy is all about, which is finding compromise and then getting things over the line to help people. And I think, you know, again, just going back to the national example, like you see these things that, you know, the federal government's doing that the Biden administration is pushing, they're incredibly popular because they're having direct impact in people's lives. And so I, I just hope and am optimistic that, you know, between what we're hearing our legislative leaders, you know, kind of respond, responding to the times and the tenor of the chamber, as well as the governor and him, his response to, um, you know, what people are calling for in terms of a recovery. Um, there's a huge amount of uh, seemingly good goodwill towards, uh, you know, finding those common issues and, and getting things done for people. And uh, I think, you know, progressives should embrace that approach as well, um, rather than, you know, kind of sticking, sticking into their ground and not giving an inch because that obviously is not a great way to get a lot of things done. Yeah. It's all about the coalition building. There's no doubt about it. Um, you've worked on state legislative and municipal campaigns. Where do you think the progressive movement goes from here in Rhode Island? I think continues to build. I, I, I would be hard pressed to think that uh, progressives aren't going to continue to, you know, incrementally gain seats in the legislature and elsewhere in the state. Um, but I also think it's it's really going to be incumbent upon progressives learning how to govern. And if uh, they don't learn how to work together amongst themselves, but also outside of people who identify as progressive with, you know, moderate, more moderate or centrist Democrats, as well as Republicans, um, and they just, you know, continue to be a, a group of folks who have great ideas, but that aren't manifesting into impact for folks, um, that that's going to be a problem. But I am really, you know, buoyed by what we're seeing going on right now, whether it's act on climate, whether it's a $15 minimum wage, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, things responding to the need for visually impaired students. You know, there's so many good things happening right now that are responding to tangible people's needs that we just need to continue that momentum and not look at. Um, I hope people don't look at 2020 as a year of like watered down compromises, but rather like a ba- the banner year that it is for great progressive legislation happening and being like, let's build on this because I just think like we're doing great, like got to continue to build that momentum. There's a human service workforce sh- shortage in Rhode Island. Explain that and and talk about the implications of that. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really kind of scary to me what um, how the conversation about you know the recovery is going right now, particularly with 
uh, still a record number of folks who are either looking for work or long term out of the workforce. Um, you know, we have a lot of conversation around how retail and and uh, fast food um, are having trouble hiring. You know, for fifteen or sixteen dollars an hour. What or in some cases, um, what's crazy to me is that we have a a crisis far greater in scale and importance to people's lives that really it seems like not a lot of people are talking about right now, which is direct care workers, so direct support professionals, uh, certified nursing assistants, people who work with people who have uh, physical or uh, other needs day in and day out, they're making, in many cases, $12, $13 an hour. And that's that was a longstanding, there was a workforce crisis in a lot of these fields prior to COVID-19. Uh, many of those agencies experienced you know, 30 40% turnover, largely due to that low wage rate that's kind of perpetuated by low reimbursement from Medicaid or from the state or from whoever's paying for their services. Um, and that's only gotten worse since COVID where, you know, people are being asked again to do life potentially, you know, uh, work that's going to make them vulnerable to getting sick or other, uh, other things um, for, for less than they could do to like flip burgers or to, to fold clothes and, and not to diminish the value of our service industry, but for the amount of attention that's been given to the hiring crisis in those areas, uh, there seems to be very little reciprocal attention to the fact that people who are charged with caring for people are making not a living wage. I, I have talked yesterday to a number of direct support professionals for some of the advocacy work that we do, and two out of five of them told me they forwent uh, career advancement, like they were going to make three to four dollars more an hour because they were going to lose their public benefits for housing, for childcare. And it's like, so if this is happening across the system where people are forgoing raises and per, and per career advancement to continue to get their public benefits, like there's a, there's a million binds going on right now. There's the state not paying enough to pay the workers enough. The workers can't go up the ranks because they can't afford to. It, like that is scary to me. And I, and I think, you know, we're about to go into a booming economy. We know hiring's already tight. I think the system is really on the verge of collapse if the state doesn't really get its act together and say, you know, we're going to start paying essential workers essential wages. And that should be at least, you know, something like $17.50 an hour and up um, because it, it just is too sad that we, we, we just we gave hazard pay for a little bit of time. And then we said, oh, we can't do that anymore. Yeah. And just put, put a lot of workers back at where they you know, were a couple of years ago. Yeah, you look at certified nursing assistants and the role that they played in all of this and the pay scale that they were facing. And it's just an unbelievable uh, injustice. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And look, people love to address the free market and competition when it comes to job creation and wages. Well, here's an opportunity. You've got a booming economy. You've got that tight, competitive uh, workforce, so to speak. Let's see a jobs creation program that can actually, um, you know, force other elements of the economy to raise their compensation as well. You know, if you can get a job 17, 18 an hour in care, that may make some of the other uh, private sector businesses say, you know what, in order to attract workers, we also have to raise our wages. And and just as a, you know, an added incentive, the state for the first time in ever memory has a lot of money able to be deployed to do exactly this. If you look at the uh, APRA uh, funding criteria, but I'm sure other stimulus funding may also um, allow for this, you can provide uh, wage increases to essential workers. And so I think this is uh, an under talked about thing that the state should really strongly consider. Um, because if we don't, it's very possible there won't be 
a direct care workforce uh, for our state's most vulnerable in the future, which is really scary. Yeah, that's super insightful. Okay, when we come back, voting access, voting restrictions, it's a topic of conversation that gets blurred with all kinds of misinformation and confusion. We'll get right back into that here on Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town podcast, right after this. If you're planning to get a COVID-19 vaccine, there are three ways to make that happen in Rhode Island. You can choose a state-run vaccination site, a regional or community-based clinic, or certain pharmacy locations. To learn more about all of these options, start at c19vaccineri.org. There, you'll find all the information and links you need to make a decision and to schedule an appointment. That's c19vaccineri.org. So voting access, early voting, in-person voting, this got so blurred and so much weirdness was created out of this, which is a very basic function. There's a lot of solutions. You could have multiple election days. You could have election days on the weekend. You could combine that with in-person and in-person and early voting by mail. You could have early voting in person, whatever it is. There's so many solutions, yet there's so many detractors to this. Why are people fundamentally against every single person that is eligible to vote being able to cast their vote? That I, I think there's a lot of misinformation. You hit the nail on the head, Bill. Uh, you know, there are some folks who I think you know it's in their interest to to do that. I think particularly the Republican Party has doubled down on you know the more people who vote the worse it is for us. And so I think there's a concerted effort of disinformation starting at the national level and, you know, our former president all the way down of people just frankly, you know, misleading about like how early voting works and how mail ballot voting works. Um, That is also coupled with, I think at the local level in Rhode Island, there's a long tradition of what, for lack of a better term, mail ballot operatives, you know, running kind of shady operations in the state. And I think that that um, really also detracts from the amount of good that early voting and mail ballot voting can offer because the vast majority of people who participate in elections that way are not, you know, the people that get written up in the uh, Wall Street Journal pro Joe article about, you know, ballot harvesting. That's not how most people vote by mail. Yeah. In fact, you know, voting by mail is something that's been around for a very long time. It's one of the safest, most secure ways to vote because there's multiple checks along the process to make sure the person who is voting who is who they say they are. And what we found in, in 2020, so we worked with six different candidates, all of whom won. We had a couple who went up against the, the go-to mail ballot guys, and both of them won. And what we did instead of you know targeting high rises and, and going after vulnerable people was we just incorporated uh, information about early voting in everything that we did. And that doesn't sound like rocket science, but people don't do that a lot of times. They don't inform people how they can vote by mail. They don't inform people about how to early vote at city or town hall. And so we just incorporated it into kind of a bit of like how we approached every campaign. And we found on average, our the candidates we worked with, you know, got between 100 or 200 more early votes than the competition. But they also uh, engaged people in early voting and mail ballot voting who are unlikely voters. So working folks, uh, you know, old elderly people who can't get to the polls, like people who are, you know, have physical disabilities. So it was really exciting to see um, in 2020 with how many people were giving it a shot that um, we were able to really get new people engaged in the electorate who otherwise just wouldn't participate. And so I, I think going forward, voting by mail in particular, but also early voting is just going to have to be a part of any well-run campaigns toolkit um, because 
more more percentage wise of the voter total electorate is going to participate in the election that way. And it's just really an essential tactic to making sure that, you know, everybody knows about your candidate and, and has the opportunity to vote at whatever point in the process they do. That's such a fascinating and obvious, like you said, statement, but it's so overlooked the, the unlikely voter going and targeting that person. Like, yeah, there it is. The person who has felt disenfranchised or just doesn't care or cares, but doesn't have the the mechanical ability to get to the polls. And when you think about these, and we'll, we'll, we'll leave them nameless, but the, the mail ballot harvesting or ballot harvesting uh, operations that target high rises and so on and so forth, they're kind of feeling like dinosaurs now. And um, I wonder how much more they will be relevant and able to make money off of these types of operations. Well, I can say, uh, having looked at, it seems like people are still paying them pretty heavily, despite, I would argue, some really lackluster results. I mean, the main thing to me is, you know, they they spend all their time focused on, frankly, in a lot of cases, coercing people into vote for their candidate. And they kind of forgo making their case to the rest of the electorate, in my experience. And so you saw, you know, one primary in particular against Senator Bell uh, that got, you know, struggled to break 30%. And that's because I think they spent all their time on the high rises that didn't go to the rest of the electorate and say, hey, here's our candidate and here's why they're running. Um, and so I think you really need to be mindful about uh, not just like making mail ballot and early voting uh, available and accessible to everybody that is interested in uh, participating in the election, but also like ensuring that you make your case to the wider electorate of voters for election day and all the other ways that people can vote. Because uh, it just seems to me like they they miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes they'll they'll focus on the harvesting, you know, tactic for whatever, for lack of a better term, and then they don't don't hit every other door um, in the in the primary universe. And it just is kind of baffling to me as someone who knows like you start with everybody and you whittle down as you go in a campaign. So it, it's just uh, interesting to see um, who's getting paid, you know, a lot of money to not do a very good job at what they do. So yeah, tell me about it. I, I that that goes uh, <laughs> same thing on on this side of the microphone as well, <clears throat> leave it right there. But all right, last last couple of minutes here. So we've seen a group, you're a part of Cranston Forward. Um, we saw a municipal group in Woonsocket emerge. There are things happening at the municipal level that is very exciting to me because people overlook town and city council school committees and the the impact that they have on obviously day-to-day life inside the municipality, but broader uh, zooming out the impact that they have on policy on a statewide basis and shaping the identities of certain regions. Um, Talk about the the role that municipal organizing plays. It may not seem as exciting as, you know, living off of Snickers bars and riding around on Cory Booker's tour bus or something like that, but it probably is just as important. Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally right, Bill, that, um, you know, municipal politics is where usually our state reps, state senators and future governors come from. Um, You know, I think our current governor is a perfect example who Mm -hmm. cut his teeth in municipal politics. Um, And I I think it's going to increasingly be where as there's this proliferation of groups and people who are engaged, um, people are increasingly realizing that the municipal level is first and foremost where the quality of life things that people care about in government actually happen. So whether it's fixing our roads, whether it's, you know, the parks or trash or 
housing. Like these are all things that actually happen at the municipal level. And I, I worked with no number of state legislative candidates last cycle who spent most of their time talking about municipal issues because that's what people care about. And so I think as people are getting activated and starting to like look under the hood of their municipal government and not like what they see or feel like they just want to have more of an active role in what the city's doing and making sure that it's responding to their community's need. That's really where I think a lot of these groups intentions are coming from. Um, and for Cranston Forward, as you know, one of the kind of co-founders with a group of other like-minded, you know, civically active uh, folks across the city who just wanted to see more of the values we as residents uh, care about in our government. We just created this thing because we, we felt like there wasn't a group to do that year in and year out organizing work that we think is really important to building a city government that actually like meets our needs. Um, whether it, you know, there's a couple issues, issue areas we're focused on, whether it's diversity, particularly in hiring and practices across city, um, you know, departments, uh, we're focused on education and obviously because that's a huge part of what city government does and making sure that the schools are being properly funded and they're keeping up with the times. And then we also have a community development and elections group that's really focused on like development projects and elections. And we've seen a number of times in Cranston, uh, folks come in with like these big box stores or other development ideas and really do a pretty astroturfing job of talking to the public. They, they have the plan, they do the community meeting to show the plan, not much that they hear gets incorporated into the plan. And so I, I think just like actively, you know, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, learning to listen and work together across like interest or even different interests, which is that if we can't find common ground between the people who are going to experience the policy and the people who want the policy to enact, and then make some semblance of that happen in the final product, then we're going to either end up with happy developers and pissed off residents or vice versa. And we need to make sure that, you know, both parties needs are being met in a way that actually is beneficial to the, the locality. And so I think that's where I see huge opportunity with, you know, our group and some of the other groups you mentioned, because um, it seems a lot of the times like city government is a place where folks go, they do their time, they move on to higher office or not. Um, but it isn't always like first and foremost to be, you know, you, it is a representative government and it should be responding to the people's needs. Absolutely. Booyah on that statement right there. There's no question about it. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I know that there's chatter in other municipalities right now of similar sorts of organizations and um, sort of taking trying to take new approaches to city government. And there's major issues right now. And I think housing and development are right there at the forefront of what municipalities can um, really sink their teeth into and make major change in the state. Yeah, no, and I, and I think no no better opportunity for the, for all of these conversations than with the federal stimulus money that's coming to the state. Yeah. Um, we've seen some uh, exciting you know, early results. So Cranston Forward that I'm a part of, we did a COVID stimulus recovery survey and uh, had 63 folks in the, across the city, different parts of the community respond to it. And honestly, what was in there was not uh, hugely surprising. You know, people want, want to focus on income loss due to job losses. They want to focus on helping small, small local businesses. They want to focus on uh, making sure that as we, you know, continue in some sort of hybrid learning environment, that there's uh, sufficient internet access, proper ventilation in the schools. So a lot of the things that I think were um, really echoed in the recent Hasenfeld report. The thing that I thought was really interesting about that, and I'll just you know take a moment to uh, note, was like in that report, 48% of respondents, or that sorry, that uh, poll, 
48% of respondents said they did not trust government officials to spend the money wisely. And 41% said they did trust officials. And so I think if leaders want to change that assumption, which I would think most leaders want people to feel good about the way they spend this massive amount, one, you know, once in a lifetime amount of money, um, that they should really take the listening efforts and the, the community needs gathering efforts seriously that are going on. You know, some groups are doing it right now. Some are going to be doing it in the near future and make sure that the spending plan mirrors those needs. And I think we've seen this cycle play out a number of times already with the federal response to COVID-19. So people feel really pessimistic because, you know, understandably, our previous president was not inspiring a lot of confidence. And so they were pessimistic about government's ability to get the job done. Then government surprised people by doing something that was really popular and called for. You know, I'm just thinking about Joe Biden on vaccines or on the stimulus, the first stimulus bill. And now he's, you know, sitting happy at a 63 plus approval rating. And, you know, it sounds obvious, but doing what people want is both good government, good policy and good politics. And I think we just need to keep that in mind as we're going through the next year, because I hear a lot of conversation about, you know, holding back, keep being, you know, thoughtful about investing only in things that are going to reap, you know, massive dividends down the road. And yes, there should be some consideration about, you know, what, how to invest this money wisely. But we also need to meet people's needs now because it's, de- people are desperate. A lot of folks are. And there's just an abundance of systemic problems that we have the opportunity to fix with this one-time influx of cash. So I hope the you know state's leaders, and they seem to be really paying note to that and, and being responsive. So I'm, I'm super optimistic about you know, the next year and what uh, our state's leaders are going to do with, with some of this money. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.